Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder, assault, and sexual content that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. It was a cold and dreary February day, and Charles Walton was trimming the hedges of Alfred Potter's field at the edge of Meon Hill. From out here, the 74-year-old farmhand could see all of Lower Quinton, the village where he had lived since he was a boy. Nowadays, he preferred the fields and the hill, where no one bothered him, and he had only the birds to talk to. Well, hello there. Take a break? Why, I've got another field to do before dusk. And just what would you know about it? If I didn't know better, I'd say you've been talking to my niece. (laughs) Walton pulled his coat tighter against the cold and considered the task that lay before him. The work had been difficult enough when he was a younger man, but it was quickly becoming too much for him. He was glad that neither Potter nor his niece Edith were here to see how little he had accomplished with half a day's labor. But today, Charles Walton was not as alone as he thought. Who's there? Come out where I can see you. Oh, oh, it's you. I wasn't expecting. What are you doing? Stay back. I, I'm warning you. Just, I, oh, back, you devil. I'll... (sighs) It would be four hours before anyone noticed Charles Walton was missing. Five before they thought to check the farm where he worked. And six hours before they found him lying cold and stiff in the blood-drenched soil beneath Meon Hill. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. You can find episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Unsolved Murders for free on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Unsolved Murders in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. Today's episode is part of our series on Halloween, where we delve into the fascinating traditions behind the world's scariest holiday. If you enjoy this episode of Unsolved Murders, be sure to check out the rest of the ParCast Presents Halloween feed on Spotify. You can listen to previous episodes of Unsolved Murders, as well as all ParCast originals, on Spotify and wherever else you listen to podcasts. This is our second episode on Who Put Bella in the Witch Elm? The unsolved murder of an unidentified woman whose skeletal remains were found inside the hollow of a tree near the West Midlands area of England in 1943. Last week, we covered attempts to identify the woman and allegations that her murder involved a black magic ritual. This week, we'll continue our story by exploring a second macabre and possibly occult-related murder that occurred in a neighboring county. 
Then next week, we'll wrap up both investigations as we try once and for all to figure out who put Bella in the witch elm. It was February 14, 1945, the Feast of St. Valentine's. As always, 33-year-old Edith had spent the day operating a printing press at the Royal Society of Arts. She had been employed by the organization since early in the war, when it had been forced out of London by constant Nazi bombing raids. At around half past five, Edith washed the ink from her hands and began to pack up her things. She made her way across the tiny hamlet of Lower Quinton to the cottage she shared with her uncle, 74-year-old Charles Walton. Charles was really more of a father to Edith, having adopted her when she was just three years old. Recently, she had become something of a housekeeper for the old man, who suffered from arthritis and required the assistance of two walking sticks. To Edith's consternation, Charles Walton still worked several days a week as a farmhand, weather allowing. I'm home. Uncle Charles? When Edith arrived at the cottage, she was surprised to find it eerily silent. Her uncle should have beaten her home by two hours. A quick search verified he was nowhere to be found. Alarmed, Edith raced out of the cottage and across the street to the home of her neighbor, Harry Beasley. Harry hadn't seen Edith's uncle that day, but agreed to help Edith look for him. The pair headed back across town, passing through the graveyard of St. Swithin's until they reached the Furs, the large farm where Charles Walton worked. Harry suggested they enlist the help of the farm's owner, Alfred Potter. Edith? What hedge was my father working on? He didn't come home today. I think, I fear something must be wrong. My God, you might be right. Let me get my torch and coat. The night seemed somehow darker than normal as the trio made their way across the farm towards the field where Alfred Potter had seen Charles Walton working earlier that day. A mist had drifted down from the nearby Meon Hill draping the fields in a sharp, biting cold that chilled the searchers to the bone. He was supposed to trim the hedges along the ridge. You can see he didn't get very far. Did you check the pub? No. He was supposed to be home by... (gasps) Uncle! In the corner of the field, they made a horrible discovery. Charles Walton lay on the ground, pinned to the earth by a pitchfork that had been stabbed through his face. As if that wasn't enough, his throat had been garishly slashed with a pruning hook, which was still embedded deep in his neck. Potter volunteered to stay with the body while Harry Beasley walked Edith Walton back to the village. The young man returned a short while later with a small throng of curious villagers, who he had passed along the way, all of whom had come to see the ghastly sight for themselves. Among them were two men who would play central roles in the investigation. First was Detective Superintendent Alex Spooner of the Warwickshire County Constabulary. Second, Dr. James Webster, a pathologist and director of the University of Birmingham's West Midland Forensic Science Laboratory. Stand back, please. Give us some space. Detective Spooner, These people are contaminating the crime scene. You heard the doctor. Let's move along, people. 
Dr. Webster quickly determined that the pitchfork and pruning hook did not account for the entirety of Charles Walton's injuries. The old man's head was bloody and partially caved in. They found his walking stick in the grass nearby, matted in blood and hair. Scratches on the back of Walton's hands indicated that he had tried to defend himself. His arms, hands, and chest were riddled with cuts and puncture wounds from the pitchfork and pruning hook. Alfred Potter confirmed that both tools belonged to him and had been lent out to Walton for the job. The old man had been run through with his own work tools and bludgeoned with his own cane. Judging from the extent of rigor mortis and the temperature of the body, Webster determined that Charles Walton had been killed sometime after 1 p.m. in the afternoon. Once Dr. Webster had completed his initial assessment and the body had been photographed, he carefully dislodged the hook from Charles Walton's throat. Removing the pitchfork was more difficult. Need a hand there, Doc? Please. Ah, there. Thank you, Detective. My God. Isn't it just the worst thing you've ever seen? You'd be surprised. Two years ago, I removed a woman's remains from an elm tree. A tree? What the devil was she doing in there? Someone put her there, obviously. They never caught the culprit. Well, let's get Mr. Walton back to the lab. In the coming days, local newspapers would devote countless front-page articles to speculation over who or what was behind Charles Walton's death. The shocking level of violence seemed to suggest either a personal vendetta or a madman on the loose. But perhaps there was another explanation. Several of the stories on Walton's death reported that a cross was carved into his chest. While this detail does not appear in either Dr. Webster's forensic report or in the police case file, it demonstrates how quickly associations with the occult came into the case. The explanations for this leap goes beyond the typical superstitions of a rural community. The black country had been rife with talk of witches ever since the skeleton, now known as Bella, had been found in Hagley Wood, only 30 miles away from the spot where Charles Walton was brutally murdered. But there was another explanation for the association, rooted in a far closer site with even deeper associations to black magic and pagan rituals. For the residents of Lower Quinton, the fact that Charles Walton was killed in the shadow of Meon Hill held an ominous significance. A single ancient oak tree stands at the top of the hill overlooking thatched roof cottages, rolling fields, and winding lanes. Once the site of an Iron Age hill fort, the mound is believed to have served as the inspiration for Weathertop, a location from J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. Local folklore marks the hill as a place of evil. According to one legend, it was the ancient home of the devil. In another story, it was the site of a fierce battle between the devil and the Bishop of Evesham Abbey, which had been built around 700 CE. The devil was so enraged by the abbey's construction that he dug a huge clod from the earth and hurled it at the church steeple. 
the bishop gathered the parishioners in the church and instructed them to pray for a miracle. God heard their prayers and intervened to throw the devil's aim off course. The dirt clod missed the abbey and landed nearby, forming Meon Hill. While these Christian stories dominate modern discussions of the site, Meon Hill was regarded as a place of dark magic long before the Romans brought the religion to Britain. In the oldest tales, Meon Hill was the hunting ground of Aroun, the Welsh god of the underworld and leader of the wild hunt. Each night, he pursues departed souls across the land on a pale steed with a pack of baying hellhounds at his side. As a lifelong resident of Warwickshire, Superintendent Spooner was well aware of the long history of stories surrounding the hill on which Charles Walton was murdered. Despite this, he set about the task of attempting to identify the culprit as systematically as possible. On February 15th, the day after the murder, a team of officers combed the fields below Meon Hill for any tracks or clues. A second group went door to door interviewing villagers who lived closest to the hill. While a few had seen Charles Walton make his way to the firs in the morning, no one reported anything out of the ordinary. The search party also came up empty-handed. By the end of the day, the only thing of value that had been established was that a white metal pocket watch Charles Walton had been wearing was missing. On the lack of progress frustrated Detective Spooner and confirmed his growing sense that the Warwickshire police officers were out of their depth. At 11 o'clock that night, the deputy constable sent a telegram to Scotland Yard in London. He received a response only one hour later. Chief Inspector Fabian will leave London tomorrow. The time of arrival of the train will be notified to you in due course. After reading the telegram, Spooner breathed a little easier. Surely the expert detectives of the Scotland Yard murder squad would have a better chance of making sense of this bizarre mystery. He could not have guessed how strange the case of Charles Walton's murder was about to become. Coming up, Detective Robert Fabian takes over the investigation. On Unsolved Murders, we explore the facts of real-life true crime cold cases. But if you're looking for more true crime cases with a bit of a twist, you should check out the ParCast original Female Criminals. When you think of a criminal... What do you picture? You picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. I bet you didn't think it could be the mother around the corner or the little old lady next door. Female Criminals investigates the lives of the world's most notorious female felons and explores the stories behind their dangerous crimes. These criminals come in every form, from serial killers and assassins to bank robbers and drug lords. Female Criminals is like a mystery and crime documentary rolled into one. New episodes premiere every Wednesday. Follow Female Criminals free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And now, back to the story. On February 14th, 1945, the body of 74-year-old Charles Walton was found on Meon Hill on a farm outside of Lower Quinton, Warwickshire, with a pitchfork through his face and a plow hook embedded in his throat. 
The violent murder seemed all the more shocking when set against the bucolic pastoral setting of the Cotswolds Township. The local police quickly determined that they were ill-equipped to tackle such a brutal murder and turned to Scotland Yard for help. On the morning of February 16th, the local detective superintendent, Alex Spooner, drove to the Leamington Spa train station to collect the London detective who had been sent to assist with the investigation. Detective? Detective Fabian, over here. You're with the Worcestershire Precinct? Yes, sir. Detective Superintendent Alex Spooner, at your service. It's an honor, sir. Let me get those. (laughs) I can handle my own bag, Spooner. Of course. The car's this way. Thank God. I was worried I'd have to ride a horse. In 1945, there was no more famous policeman in England than Detective Superintendent Robert Honey Fabian. Since joining the force in 1921, Fabian had quickly risen through the ranks of Scotland Yard thanks to his thoroughness, tenacity, and a talent for building relationships within London's expansive underworld. By the age of 44, Fabian had put away dozens of criminals, from petty thieves to murderers and gangsters. He would later describe the qualities that had helped him throughout his career. Detective work calls for a scavenging mind. Wherever one goes, there are titbits of knowledge, snatches of foreign language, odd facts about company law, medicine, local customs, travel, or toxicology, which may prove of decisive value in unraveling a baffling case. He must be prepared to mix with a duke or a dustman, a bishop or a pickpocket. He must be tactful, courageous, painstaking, vigilant, and a wizard at jigsaws. More than any of the countless cases he had covered, Detective Fabian's greatest claim to fame stemmed from an act of bravery in 1939, six years before the murder of Charles Walton. Fabian was sitting at his desk in Scotland Yard when a bomb blast rattled the building. Without thinking, he grabbed his gas mask, sprinted out of the building and towards the smoking, glass-strewn intersection of Piccadilly and Glasshouse. The bomb had been planted along with six others by the Irish Republican Army. And before the night was over, they would leave 20 people injured. But the casualties could have been far worse if not for Fabian's actions. Amidst the mass of fleeing civilians, he spotted a small package at a street corner and carefully opened it to find another bomb inside. Officer, move everyone away from this area as quickly and carefully as you can. While officers cordoned off the area, Fabian carefully sliced through the gelatinous nitroglycerin with his standard-issue police knife. He wouldn't learn until later that at any moment, the material of the knife blade could have reacted with the nitroglycerin and triggered an explosion. But due to his courage and luck, the bomb was safely dismantled and disposed of. Fabian received the King's Police Medal for his actions during the Piccadilly Circus bombing. Later, when he retired from the force in 1949, he turned to writing and released a pair of highly commercial memoirs. The first, titled Fabian of the Yard, would serve as the inspiration for the television series of the same name, 
the first British police procedural series. But on February 16, 1945, Fabian was still a decade away from having his name grace British television screens. That morning, Detective Spooner picked Fabian up from the train station and drove him back to the Stratford-upon-Avon police station, which would serve as the headquarters for the investigation. Fabian immediately got to work setting up his temporary office. Detective Fabian, here's the case file you requested with all the relevant interviews. We spoke to the niece, the employer, and all the nearest neighbors. They're all there. Thank you, Spooner. We'll start by bringing all of them in for questioning again before we move on to the rest of the town. The rest of the town? You're going to interview all of Lower Quinton? And Upper Quinton. And I think Edmonton as well, to be safe. That's got to be close to 500 people. So few. <laughs> I'll let the yard know this should be quick. Let's have the employer first, and then the niece. I've got an RAF man scheduled to take some aerial photographs of the crime scene this afternoon, and a couple dozen metal detectors arriving in the morning. I'd like to locate Walton's pocket watch. It's possible the killer threw it away somewhere in the field when they realized it wasn't worth much. You really don't leave a single stone unturned. That's how we're going to solve this, Spooner. By understanding everything that happened in this county on February 14th. We learn who was where and why. We find the holes. Where the alibis fall apart. In a town this small, someone will have seen something. Someone will know something. Fabian commissioned a Royal Air Force pilot to fly over the furs and take aerial photographs of the crime scene. They were so detailed that you could make out the bloodstain where Charles Walton had fallen. Fabian had one of these photographs blown up and tacked it to the wall as a map. Over the coming days, it would be filled with colored flags and pieces of string, tracing the movement of the county's residents. He would later write that he had, quote, brought the 20th century to Little Quinton like a cold shower bath. The detective began by interviewing Alfred Potter, the owner of the farm where Charles Walton had worked and died. Thank you for seeing me, Mr. Potter. How are you getting on since the murder? Not great, sir. Mrs. Potter isn't taking the news too well. She was a friend of Mr. Walton's? Oh, no. She knew him by sight, but I don't think they ever shared words. Then... Why is she so upset? Worried about what people will think, of course. He died on our land, and you know how superstitious folks can be. She thinks they would suspect you, because he died on your land. What? No, not that. But you know how folks can be. Superstitious. Not good for business. Did you see Mr. Walton on the day of the murder? I did. I went out to see some sheep and feed some calves. I saw Walton working at the hedge in the next field. About 500 yards away, working in his shirt sleeves. I would have gone over to see him, but I had a dead heifer in a ditch to attend to. What time was that? Saw him about 10 past 12. And what was your opinion of Mr. Walton? Never had a crossword with the fellow. Never heard him say a bad thing about anybody. I don't think he had an enemy in the world. But he was a man of spirit. And if someone attacked him, I think he would defend himself. While he listened, Fabian was silently sizing up the man across from him. 
Alfred Potter was a big, barrel-chested man with broad shoulders and little neck. The Scotland Yard detective had no doubt that he easily could have overpowered a feeble old man like Charles Walton, but the scrapes on Walton's arms had suggested that he had defended himself, and Potter didn't bear any marks suggesting he'd been in a fight. Next, Fabian and Spooner headed to Charles Walton's cottage to speak with the old man's 33-year-old niece, Edith. Uncle Charles was a kind, wonderful man. He didn't have any enemies. I can't understand who would want to hurt him. What was the state of your uncle's finances? I'm not sure. He made very little, and he never carried any amount of money. Sometimes a purse with a few shillings in it, but he left it at home that morning. Did he have any debts or life insurance? Had he lent anyone money? Not that I'm aware of. I think he had an account at the Midland Bank in Stratford-upon-Avon. But I have no idea how much he had in it. After questioning Edith, the detectives conducted another search of the cottage, hoping to find the missing pocket watch, or some clue to point them in the direction of the killer, but nothing seemed out of the ordinary, until they stepped out into the back garden. What the devil? (laughs) Do they not have toads in London, detective? Not quite so many in one spot. There's got to be hundreds of them. So sorry. We've got just the worst infestation of natterjacks. Hold on, I'll grab a broom. That's all right, Miss Walton. I, I, I think we're finished here. Thank you for your time. You've been most helpful. Watch your step, detective. With Alfred Potter and Edith Walton out of the way the detectives turned their attention to the rest of Lower Quinton. From the outset, the detective was met with downcast eyes and a reluctance to address the subject of Charles Walton's death. As an outsider, Fabian expected his door-to-door visits to elicit suspicion and distrust from the villagers and brought Superintendent Spooner along for this very reason. But what surprised him most was that no one seemed particularly worried that there might be a maniac killer on the loose. Did Charles Walton have any enemies? No, no, I don't know anything about that. You don't know anyone who might have had a grudge against him? Well, I I will say we had a fair bit of trouble with the harvest last year. Trouble? Weather was good all year, but there was no yield at harvest. Whole crops went bad. And you heard Alfred Potter lost another heifer last week? I fail to see what bad crops or a dead cow have to do with Charles Walton. Who said they had anything to do with it? Good day. Wait! The longer the interviews dragged on, the stranger the accounts of Charles Walton became. Several villagers spoke in vague, grumbled references to bad crops and diseased livestock. Others insisted that Charles Walton was a horse whisperer or had the ability to speak to birds. Birds, you said? Oh yeah, he was always whistling at them. Knew all their different songs. You know they had an agreement to stay out of his plot of land. And they say he was breeding natterjack toads. Is that so? By the end of the day, Detective Fabian was no closer to establishing a motive behind Charles Walton's murder. What he had come away with was the distinct sense that he was missing something important. 
But while the Scotland Yard detective struggled to make sense of the villagers' stories, Superintendent Alex Spooner was growing increasingly uneasy. Unlike the London-born detective, Spooner had spent his life amongst the people of Warwickshire. He was well aware of the legends surrounding Meon Hill and the old superstitions that had never quite disappeared in the black country. When the villagers complained of bad harvests, Spooner heard a veiled accusation that Charles Walton possessed the evil eye. In medieval times, it was believed that witches held the power to blight crops, curse livestock, and turn men infertile. The practice was known as blasting and was frequently said to involve the use of natterjack toads. This rare yellow-striped toad was believed to be a favorite animal among witches and a popular form of familiar spirits. In medieval folklore, a familiar is a spirit, such as an imp, lesser demon, or fairy, that is bound to a witch and assists them with their magic. Often these spirits would disguise themselves as a common animal, like a cat, a dog, a toad, or a newt, so as to spy on their master's enemies and help them pass undetected. During the medieval witch trials, a close relationship with a pet was often used as evidence that someone had a familiar and thus was a witch. At first, Spooner dismissed the talk as mere superstition, but as the interviews wore on, he started to think they might have a bearing on the case after all. He was not yet sure how to broach the topic with Fabian, but he determined to do some research on the subject before bringing it up. On February 20th, 1945, five days after Fabian arrived in Lower Quinton, the detectives attended a coroner's inquest into Charles Walton's murder at the town hall in Stratford-upon-Avon. While they were there, police constable Michael Lamasney stopped by the Furs to check on his friend Alfred Potter. Mr. Potter's wife, Lillian Potter, answered the door. Her eyes were red and she appeared to have been sobbing. Lillian? What's the matter? You know we never had anything to do with the villagers much, and what will they think? They will pin it all on Alf. Mr. Walton worked for us, and it happened on our land, but we cannot account for where Alf was every bit of the day. Lillian? Who are you talking? Oh, hello, Constable. Didn't know you were coming. Just thought I'd stop and see how you folks were holding up. Lillian seems pretty upset over this whole Charles Walton incident, Alf. I'm not sure you should be talking to her about it so much. She's fine. But why didn't they ask me to testify at the inquest? You would think they would, as he was killed on my land. Perhaps they've got everything they need. Sure, they've got the great Fabian of Scotland Yard on the case. We all know they never muck things up. Don't worry, Alfred. I'm sure this whole business will be wrapped up before you know it. Who knows? Maybe the killer left prints on the tools. What? The pitchfork and the pruning hook. They're being checked for fingerprints, of course. Fabian should have the results today from Dr. Webster. I see. Well, of course they already know I touched the pruning hook. Did you? I didn't know that. Yes. I touched it, briefly when we found him. Harry Beasley said we should make sure that Charles was gone. So I went up to take a look, 
and I, I touched the handle, just to see. And sure enough, he was gone. Oh, you fool! They will have your fingerprints now. They'll blame you for it. Don't be silly, my dear. The police already know I touched it. I've told them already more than once. That's right. Don't worry, Lillian. I I'm sure Fabian will have this solved before you know it. They say he's the best. Yes, and that is comforting. Please let Detective Fabian know that if he's got any more questions for me, I'd be more than happy to oblige. I've nothing to fear from the truth. After saying goodbye to the couple, Constable Lamasny got back into his car and drove away from the Furs. He had planned on heading for home afterwards, but when he reached the main road, he turned towards Stratford-upon-Avon. The inquest would no doubt already be wrapping up, but the constable had a feeling Fabian would want to hear about his meeting with the Potters as soon as possible. Lamasney had read Alfred Potter's official statement, and the farmer had never mentioned touching the murder weapon before. It wasn't until Lomasny suggested the weapons would be fingerprinted that he suddenly became set upon establishing that he had. Lomasny didn't know why, but he was sure of one thing. Alfred Potter was lying. Coming up, Detective Fabian continues his search for answers and finds more than he bargained for. And now, back to the story. In 1945, the sleepy Warwickshire hamlet of Lower Quinton was shaken by the violent murder of Charles Walton, a 74-year-old farm worker. Scotland Yard dispatched Detective Robert Fabian to lead the investigation. Fabian began by canvassing the areas of Lower and Upper Quinton, knocking on the door of each and every cottage to question the residents as to their knowledge of Charles Walton and their whereabouts on the day of the murder. They were less than receptive. At nearly every door, the Londoner was met with suspicion and hostility, which he noted in the official case report. The natives of Upper and Lower Quinton and the surrounding district are of a secretive disposition, and they do not take easily to strangers. Therefore, I have borne in mind the possibility of there being some local history attached to the murdered man or his neighbors, which we have not yet touched upon, and which may have a direct bearing upon the murder. On one morning, Fabian woke early and drove out alone to the Furs, as he had many times since arriving in Lower Quinton. He made his way across the field to the spot where Charles Walton had been killed. The ground was now covered by nettles, but the detective could still make out the dark stain of Walton's blood. From his vantage on the lower slope of Meon Hill, he could make out most of Lower Quinton, with its endless verdant fields, quaint cottages, and sprawling market square. Fabian was certain that Charles Walton's murderer was somewhere down there. Yet strangely, none of the villagers seemed particularly concerned that a dangerous psychotic killer might be on the loose. While the detective stood there, a massive black dog came strolling over the hill. Fabian had been missing his own bulldog, Buller, and he instinctively reached out to pet the black hound, but a threatening growl made him think better of it. Hey there, boy. Aren't you a big fella? All right. Ugh. Didn't mean anything by it. 
Seems the dogs are as pleasant as the townsfolk. A short while later, a boy appeared from the same direction as the dog. Fabian was almost surprised when instead of scowling, the boy smiled and waved at him. Morning, mister. Looking for your dog, son? Dog? What dog? It was a big black thing just passed. Now where are you going? Odd. Looked as if he'd seen a ghost. When Fabian mentioned the dog, the boy turned pale and took off running in the same direction he'd come from. Strange occurrences like this had plagued the investigation almost from the moment Fabian had arrived in Lower Quinton. The few villagers who had been willing to talk to the detective had spoken in hushed whispers about crops going bad and heifers dying in ditches. Fabian had little idea what to make of any of this and was growing more and more flummoxed with how slowly the investigation was progressing. After two weeks on the job, the detective had only one significant suspect, Alfred Potter, the farmer who had employed Charles Walton and owned the farm on which he'd been killed, had recently begun acting in a way that Fabian found very suspicious. Ever since he had learned that the investigators would be testing the murder weapons for fingerprints, Potter had suddenly become determined to establish the fact that he already admitted to touching them after discovering the body. This was surprising for a number of reasons. First, neither Superintendent Spooner nor any of the other police remembered such a disclosure. Second, the pitchfork and pruning hook used to kill Charles Walton had been the same ones the old man had been using to trim the hedges that day. Any fingerprints on the tools could easily be explained by the fact that they belonged to Alfred Potter in the first place. In the end, all of this was inconsequential. When the analysis came back from Dr. Webster's forensics lab, Potter's fingerprints had not been found anywhere on the tools. Fabian remained suspicious of the farmer, but as a disciple of the Hendon Detective Training School, he valued a reasoned approach over hunches. So far, no evidence had arisen to tie Alfred Potter to the crime. And there was another problem, not just with the Potter theory, but with the overarching investigation. So far, Fabian had struggled to establish any potential motives for Charles Walton's death. What did Alfred Potter or anyone else have to gain from murdering the elderly farmhand, especially in such a brutal fashion? Well, there was one possible motive Fabian was considering. Ever since his first day on the case, the detective had been puzzled by the issue of Charles Walton's finances. While the old man made very little as a farmhand, it seemed that he had spent even less. According to his niece, Edith, he never drank with the other villagers and could always be found either at work or at home. Fabian visited the Midland Bank in Stratford-upon-Avon, where Charles Walton had an account, and learned that Walton had inherited about 200 pounds after his wife's death. Since then, the old man appeared to have made no major purchases and should have earned more than enough to maintain his meager lifestyle. And yet, the remaining balance in the account was less than two pounds. Where had the money gone? Mulling the question over, Fabian could think of a few possible explanations. Walton could have hidden the money. The killer could have known about it and thought Walton would have it on his person. The killer might have tried to get Walton to tell them where it was. They might even have taken the money after Walton's death, 
which could explain why it hadn't turned up. Alternatively, Walton could have lent the money to someone else, which might have led to an altercation when the person couldn't pay. Neither scenario pointed to any culprit in particular, but the theory was still developing. Fabian had a feeling that he was finally onto something. When Fabian got back to the Stratford-upon-Avon police station, he found Superintendent Alex Spooner waiting for him with a stack of books. Morning, Spooner. What's that you got there? Uh, just a couple of books about the local area. Thought they might help with the investigation. I've marked the relevant bits. Wonderful. Wouldn't hurt to get a better sense of the local color. The first book, Folklore, Old Customs and Superstitions in Shakespeare's Land, was a compilation of local legends compiled by an English clergyman named J. Harvey Bloom in 1929. Fabian flipped through the text to the section underlined by Superintendent Spooner and began to read. In Alveston, a plow lad named Charles Walton met a dog at... Charles Walton? What year is this? Fabian had not expected to find the name of the murder victim in a book, but the story that followed was more surprising still. It claimed that back in 1885, a young plow lad named Charles Walton had been working a field named Meon Hill. One evening, while walking home alone from work, he saw something coming towards him down the narrow dirt lane. It was an enormous black dog. Young Charles Walton's eyes widened at the sight of the massive hound, but he forced himself to keep walking, hoping that the creature would not see him as a threat or a meal if he appeared calm. As he passed the dog, he glanced down to see its glistening jowls, mere inches from his hand. But it merely sniffed him before continuing on its way. Charles Walton breathed a sigh of relief, and when the dog was out of sight, he ran the rest of the way home. The next day, Charles Walton was walking the same route home when he saw the dog for the second time. Once again, he stayed his course and the dog passed by with merely a sniff. He saw the dog again the next day and the day after that, always passing it at the same point in the road. On the fifth day, he dared to pat the blackhound on the head as it passed. On the sixth day, he stopped for a full minute to scratch it behind the ear before they went their separate ways. On the ninth day, Charles Walton pocketed a stale roll from his breakfast, looking forward to feeding it to the dog that night. It was a dark night, with far less moon than normal, and a dense mist had descended from Meon Hill. Young Charles made his way down the narrow dirt road, peering through the gloom for a sight of his canine friend. But this time, the dog was not alone. Walking beside it was a tall, slender, headless woman, dressed in a pale white gown. As he did on the first night, Charles Walton walked steadily forward, eyes fixed straight ahead of him, his heart pounding in his chest as he approached the dog and the headless woman. As he passed them, every fiber of his being screamed for him to run. Walton froze and shut his eyes when he heard the woman and dog stop. He could tell that neither of them was moving. He could hear the dog panting, but there was no sign of the woman's breath. Something cold and wet touched Walton's hand. 
He nearly screamed before he realized it was the dog's nose. He carefully reached out and patted it on the head. Then the dog and the headless woman continued on their way. The next morning, Charles Walton woke bright and early to prepare for work and was surprised to find that his parents were not outside tending to the hogs as usual. He found them at the edge of their lot, waist deep in a partially dug grave. His sister had died during the night. Detective Fabian did not know what to make of this strange ghost story. He couldn't even be sure that it was the same Charles Walton, whose death he was currently investigating. The dates, at least, seemed to match up. The murdered Charles Walton would have been 14 years old when the young plowboy was supposed to have crossed paths with the dog and the headless woman. But as far as Fabian knew, Walton had not lost a sister in 1885. Fabian set the folklore book aside and turned to Warwickshire by Clive Holland. He hoped that this text might provide more concrete information about either the area or the Walton family. But while the story underlined within was clearly historical in nature, it was possibly even more disturbing than the ghost story he had just read. It concerned a 70-year-old murder case from the nearby town of Lower Compton. In the village, some interesting and ancient customs still survive, amongst which are the Christmas singers and the crowning of the May Queen. And even as late as 1875, the effect of ancient superstitions concerning witches and the evil eye was seen in the crime of a man named John Haywood. On September 15, 1875, an 80-year-old woman named Anne Tennant, who had lived in the town all her life, had been on her way to town to buy a loaf of bread when she crossed the path of a farmhand named James Haywood. Without warning, Haywood leapt on the old woman and began stabbing her with a pitchfork until he finally plunged the weapon into her temple. At the inquest two days later, Haywood showed no remorse for the savage crime. He seemed convinced that Anne Tennant was a witch and that along with a coven of 16 other witches who lived in the town, she was responsible for the deaths of all the cattle and crops the villagers had lost over the years. The book went into further detail about the method Haywood had used to kill Anne Tennant, the method which was eerily similar to the murder of Charles Walton. According to the text, by running Anne Tennant through with his pitchfork, Haywood had recreated the ancient Anglo-Saxon custom of staking a witch, which was said to nullify the curse that they had placed upon the land. At his trial for murder, during the course of his defense, John Haywood said, If you had known the number of people who lie in our churchyard, who, if it had not been for them, would have been alive now, you would be surprised. She was a proper witch. Detective Fabian shut the book. Deeply unsettled by the two stories he had just read, he could dismiss the tale of the young Charles Walton and the Hound as mere folklore. But the second story was undeniably real. Seventy years ago, a woman had been accused of witchcraft and killed in a manner eerily similar to the murder of Charles Walton. The Scotland Yard detective did not yet know what it all meant. But to find the answer, he would first have to learn the story of yet another murder. 
the murder of a young woman from the local area who was buried inside a tree, and known only by the name given to her by an anonymous graffiti artist, Bella of Hagley Wood. Thanks again for tuning into Unsolved Murders. And we'll be back next Tuesday with part three of Who Put Bella in the Witch Elm, in which we wrap up both the story of Charles Walton and the Hagley Wood mystery. You can find all episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Well, not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Unsolved Murders, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Unsolved Murders on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Unsolved Murders in the search bar. Well, several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Yeah, if we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler and developed by Ron Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, with sound design by Carrie Murphy. Production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Mahler, Maggie Admire, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Unsolved Murders was written by Andrew Kelleher and stars Carter Roy and Wendy McKenzie. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Mike Capozzi, Susanna Corrington, Harris Markson, Samantha Moore, Alistair Murden, and Steve Pinto. 